Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast, hosted by Elise Lonich Ryan, John Buckman, and me, Ryan McDermott. I'm a professor of English at the University of Pittsburgh and faculty director of the Beatrice Institute, an ecumenical learning and research community that supports advanced inquiry in the Christian intellectual and cultural traditions. Animated by intellectual friendship, inside and outside the academy, Beatrice Institute serves all who pursue the beautiful, the true, and the good. My guest today is Rusty Reno, editor of First Things, an ecumenical journal of religion and public life. He is the editor of the Brazos Theological Commentary on Scripture series and the author of several books, most recently, Return of the Strong Gods, Nationalism, Populism, and the Future of the West. For 20 years, Reno taught theology at Creighton University. He is an accomplished rock climber, and our interview touches on his escapades in Yosemite in the early 1980s. Now Roman Catholic, Reno was formerly Episcopalian, and I began our conversation asking him about his conversion. You wrote In the Ruins of the Church when you were still an Anglican. Episcopalian, maybe? Yeah, Americans call Anglicans called Episcopalians in the U.S. So shortly after the publication, or at least as I recall it, it seemed fairly quick, you crossed the Tiber. And I remember hearing from a number of Anglicans that your conversion invalidated the argument of that book, which was essentially that faithful Christians are called to remain in a ruined church as witnesses and lamenters, like the prophets remained in apostate and exiled Israel. So it seemed to some Anglicans at the time that you were reneging on that vocation by jumping ship to the doctrinal and moral security of Rome. <laughs> but now there are many voices. I was teaching at a Jesuit university. I had no illusions about the doctrinal and moral certainties of the Catholic Church. That's, that's, that's what I suspected. And, and of course, now there are many voices in the Roman Catholic Church who see their own communion in ruins, whether because of demographics in the U.S. and Europe, or because of a perceived progressive trend among powerful elites. So how did you see the situation when you converted, and how does that compare to what you see now in both the Anglican and the Roman Catholic communions? Yeah, I would say I don't, I don't think, I didn't change my mind about the argument in the ruins of the Church. I didn't leave the Episcopal Church because of its infidelities and so on, all of which were known to me for two decades before I, I mean, I started my graduate studies in theology in 1984. I entered the Catholic Church in 2004. And already in graduate school, I was well aware of the problems that afflict the Episcopal Church USA. But it was more uh, just a personal failing. You know, I, I was involved in this national committee I think it was, I can't remember, maybe it was the, I can't remember the name of the committee, but it had to do with some, you know, it had to do with the sex matters, which just seems to be what everybody's preoccupied with throughout my lifetime. And, you know, I just, I just became so bitter. And my own church that I went to in Nebraska was actually quite reasonable and sound, but just the, the sort of spiritual bitterness that I was feeling, and it became it became in a kind of intolerable basis for religious life. Uh, you can't anger really is not a, is not a healthy basis, not a sound basis for religious life. And so I kind of collapsed into the Catholic Church. 
more than chose it. I think the argument I was making in the rules of the church, I'm very much influenced by Ephraim Radner, Anglican theologian that teaches at Wycliffe College. And so I had, I, as I said, I had no illusions about Catholicism. I think Catholicism I'd written about how Catholicism is implicated in, in the same, it's implicated in the same theological atmosphere that brought all these trials and tribulations to mainline Protestantism. So, you know, becoming Catholic was just descending to the prime substance of Christianity in the West. And, and uh, so I, I don't think it falsifies the argument, because I don't think I, I didn't convert to Catholicism. I didn't examine Catholicism and say, oh, now I've come to see that Protestantism is doctrinally erroneous, and the Catholic Church possesses the true doctrines. It was a much more, as I say, a kind of much more primitive thought pattern on my part. It's, you know, it was more when, you're, when you feel that you've been abandoned or that you're lost, where's home base? And I think my Protestant friends would agree that the Church of Rome is the prime substance of Christianity in the West. So you go ad fontes, back to the source. Now, though, there are circles... Uh maybe, you know, that are not as fringe as they used to be within the Catholic Church who talk about the possibility of a coming schism in order to remain faithful. Do you think there's a kind of, is there a sequel to that book or a, a kind of Catholic rebranding uh, that's, that's out, that, that might be in the future? That's a great question. Uh, it is similar. I wrote an article called Theology in the Ruins of the Church. And in that article, I argued, it was based on research I had done into uh, ecclesiology and, and the debate about the one true church that emerges after the Reformation. And I, I came to be more and more convinced that the theological superstructure of both Protestantism and Catholicism is organized around a kind of polemical relation between the two, the two strands, so to speak. And that the 20th century ecumenical movement had, in the loss of confidence that either Catholics or Protestants have in the old, really hardcore exclusive claims, uh, was going to undermine the plausibility structures for both Catholicism and Protestantism. And that the effect of that would be to make the religious life of Christians in the West, the language I use would be more primitive. And it forces, forces us back, it makes our theology less um, plausible, less stable, and forces us down to the fundamental language of Scripture and, and uh, liturgical life. Uh, is that, and that, again, I'm influenced by Ephraim Radner, who sees the end of the church, using scare quotes for end of the church, as uh, a blessing and not a curse, or as a, a kind of severe grace uh, that God gives to Christianity in the late modern West to drive us back to the real foundation of the apostolic faith. So I, 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 I think a, a, some kind of sequel could be written, yes. Um, yeah. And as I said when I interrupted you when you asked the question, that teaching at Creighton University is a Jesuit school. I taught there from 1990 to 2010, and uh, I, I had no... I had no illusions about the Catholic Church. <laughs> and also, you know, the clerical abuse crisis predated my entry into the church. Uh, and that crisis also was not a shock to me, given what I knew about what went on in clerical circles 
Yes, it's a treasure in very earthen vessels. Also around the time of your conversion, you co-wrote an excellent book that was kind of in the vanguard of a renewal of pre-modern or pre-critical spiritual interpretation of the Bible. Um, it was called Sanctified Vision, an Introduction to Early Christian Interpretation of the Bible. That book was actually, it, it, it played a critical role for me. I read it in, I think, actually uh, a few weeks before I began my PhD program in literature. And it was, uh, it was one of the major factors that nudged me in the direction of focusing on spiritual exegesis for my dissertation, which, which became my first book. And now you're the editor of the Brazos Theological Commentaries on Scripture series. So comparing the present day to, say, your PhD years at Yale, how would you compare the, pla the place of biblical studies in modern theology and the status of theological exegesis in biblical studies? When I was preparing for to launch the Brazos series, I went back and you know, read some of the books that influenced me in grad school. William Temple's commentary on the Gospel of John, uh, Austin Ferrer's interpretation of St. Matthew and St. Mark, and Brevard Childs's commentary on the Book of Exodus. Those really come to my mind. And I was really struck the way that Childs preserved the kind of high modern, you know, working out the philological complexities, giving Witzemleben, you know, doing the, you know, the Gerhard von Rod moves. And then he would have a final section on theological interpretation, you know, set apart. And, you know, my work on the Church Fathers uh, with my colleague John O'Keefe had made me really aware of how alien this kind of segmentation of the theological moment was from classical you know, pre-modern interpretation of the Bible. I mean, it's alien to contemporary preaching. <laughs> but nothing is more deadly than a sermon that kind of lays out historical critical issues and then pivots to theological meaning. And so the idea behind the series was to get biblical, I mean, get theological writers to write about the Bible and not biblical scholars to talk about theology. And the impulse there, or the objective there was both to get fresh eyes that could break out of it. I mean, Charles's commentary was very early. I think it was in the early 70s and was, I think, uh, groundbreaking to even consider that material for a high eminent scholar like him. And he really was a great figure. He was a, he was a grad professor in, when I was in grad school kind of person very much encouraging further development of theological voice in the interpretation of scripture. But it was to get non-biblical scholars because, you know, the socialization in graduate study in the Bible is extremely strong and very hard to break out of that. But also it was to force theologians to actually read the Bible and take responsibility for commentary, which has always been a key element of theological vocation until the modern era. So we theologians, post-liberal theologians, as we call ourselves at Yale in the 80s when I was doing my graduate study, we were all full of our criticisms of modern historical criticism. We had our critiques of liberal theology, but we wouldn't step up to the plate and actually do the work. We theorized why it was necessary, but we wouldn't actually do it. And, and I hope that 
one fruit of the Brazos series would be a renewed competence among theologians uh, as commentators. And I think we've succeeded modestly in that regard. Uh, a lot of my friends who have written commentaries have, and I could report on my own, I wrote the commentary on Genesis. It, as Ephraim Radner said, the Bible humiliates you because there's always more to say and you, you're not up to it. And, other, and I found that it was, I mean, I learned a tremendous amount, and I don't mean uh, facts. It was a theological education and many concepts and theological moves that I was you know, well-versed in from my own training came alive in a way. They became alive as instruments of uh, interpretation in a way that I, it was quite enriching. So maybe, maybe that's a hint at my next question, which is, what's the connection, if there is one, between your engagement with biblical hermeneutics and your other abiding consideration of the tensions between the individual and the community? Yeah, I, you know, one of uh, Bruce Marshall uh, likes to tease me about how I'm, I'm a kind of a handyman academic, a utility infielder. You know, I shortstop for a while, a little bit out there in left field. It's not really clear how I wrote a book on the Doctrine of the Atonement, a kind of quirky, weird book on the Doctrine of the Atonement that, I mean, I could give you probably some strained effort, some strained account of how that's connected to my interest in biblical exegesis. Probably the most, the most, um, the, the linkages are actually latent in David Dawson's book on figural interpretation of the Bible the fashion of Christian identity. Uh, but, you know, because I'm, I got to have a bit of a restless personality. I don't tarry long enough to make the connections myself. So I, I would describe myself as a, I, I, yeah, Bruce Marshall, like I said, he, he teases me and says, you're not really a scholar. Because <laughs> a scholar would, you know, put in the time to sort of tie these things together. And, and I, I'm too restless to do that. I'm probably cut out to write column magazine more than uh, monographs for the library. It's the classic, classic fox, right? Versus hedgehog. Yes. But, but con- to, to, to go back to that, the, the atonement book, uh, there's a lot of, the, if you're, if you read Kant, religion within the limits of reason alone, and the Kantian tradition in general, the problem of heteronomy is the driving problem in, in, in Kant's, philosophy, and I think it describes what is the existential anxiety of modernity. And it's the anxiety that we're under the thumb of something that's fundamentally alien to us. And we serve a master that is, um, doesn't have our interests at heart, whether it's the monarch with his absolute authority or whether it's bourgeois morality that's uh, um, ultimately going to make our lives thin and artificial. We, I could go on and on, different instances in the modern era. And I, I, I don't know when it happened, but sometime early in my career as a teacher, I became more and more aware that my students were not fearful of being dominated as they were fearful of being kind of lost or dispersed or in some way undone. And so they were cautious rather than... It wasn't like they had this... Emersonian ambition that was ready to burst out, but rather they were cautious and self-protective against something that was going to, it wasn't a power from above, it was just, you know, maybe if, maybe this is 
Nietzsche talks about, you know, uh, nihilism as the end point for modernity and nihilism as a threat of, of, a, of a kind of vacuum where you get torn apart by the vacuum rather than crushed by the great power and force of the singular power and force. Anyway, so I'm, I'm kind of babbling on. And, and so the book on atonement grapples with that. that the Doctrine of the Atonement is not just about our dependence upon God's grace to escape from dominion from sin, but also the role of Christ on the cross as the bridge, so to speak, between the old man and the new man. Aristotle once said, no man would accept the world for the sake of being another person, if it costs being another person. And I think that there's a danger we feel in our time, not that I'm being dictated to, but that the moral demands of Christianity stretch us to the point of breaking. And how do we endure uh, any kind of moral, any kind of strong moral demand? How can you actually survive it? That's very different from the question of, is it really mine? And that's the old heteronomy question. Is it really mine? And this new, which I think is more of a postmodern question is, you know, how, how can I, how can I survive? And reading interpretation is you build a house of interpretation. You, I mean, Origen's very beautiful in his descriptions, uses the image of a, uh, the house of interpretation, or it's in Descartes' discourse on method, the house of knowledge. And so you build it, you, you, you are, you're weaving, uh, if you will, garments that you can then put on. And, and so this kind of interpretive exercise of, I mean, George Lindbeck said it in The Nature of Doctrine, that for classical Christian theology, the text absorbs the world rather than the world absorbing the text. And so the, the textual identity becomes a, a constant, so to speak, even as we anguish about our own pilgrimage from sin into sanctity. So I try to make a connection. So in the conclusion of your dissertation, you wrote, the Christian language of faith calls the believer to challenge the present community with a vision nurtured by the individual's relationship to God. Yeah, I think that, that my dissertation was overdetermined by the Kantian concern about heteronomy. And so I, I, that was, it was, you know, I was, what was I reading? Karl Popper, Open Society, its, its Enemies, uh, all kinds of stuff in political and moral philosophy that revolve around that classic modern problem. And so I think my dissertation, I remember David Kelsey, who read it, said it was adequate, but it ultimately failed. And, and I said, well, you know, thanks. And they said, but you're, you're actually, the real topic that you're interested in is transcendence. I mean, in other words, he's, and I was like, to double take, what, what are you talking about? And I went back and we read it and said, yes, he's correct. Transcendence is really about stretching, right? And then that's my point about the greater the promise of transcendence, the more fearful we are that we're going to snap as we stretch. And that the cord that connects us past to pre- uh, future, present to future, old man to new man will, will break, will snap. And that's a very different question than the one of, like, who's transcendence, Right. Who's telling me what my goal is? That's the heteronomy question. Whereas the other question is, you know, how can we see God and not die? That's the, that's the, uh, that's the kind of Old Testament, which actually is at odds, right? Uh, Moses' son, uh, Mount Sinai, he cannot see God and live. 
but in the book of Job, Job sees God and yet lives. And that reflects this deep biblical, I think, it's the textual way, it's the, it's the Bible's way of conveying to us the, 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 the grandeur of the promise of redemption and also its fearfulness that uh, it really is more than we can bear. So what I did is I revised his dissertation and as my first book, The Ordinary Transform, and that cap, the title captures what I see as the, the Christian promise which is our final destiny is not natural. It is supernatural. But as St. Thomas says, great, grace does not destroy, but transforms nature. So, yeah, this is one, of, one, of, one question I had for you is just to, I want, I want to you think that's reflect actually, it on... It is a kind of failed dissertation. What's that? It is a kind of failed dissertation. Well, every, sometimes, every, every dissertation is a failure. I mean, sometimes you have to write something to figure out what it is that you really think. And... You know, my, I was anguishing about this, and my dissertation director, Gene Alka, said, the best dissertation is a completed dissertation. <laughs> Make your first book the thing that you really love. Yeah, exactly. It's good advice. So why do you think the nature-grace debate in the American context happened when it did? What do you mean? Well, so, so the, the debate over the natural desire to see God Oh, um, right. Right, and... The kind of mid-20th century, I mean, triggered by Henri de Lubac's book, uh, Sonatoral. Right, uh, but then this resurgence in the early 2000s of, of, of the, yes. the argument. Yeah, was Steve Wong probably leading the charge on that. Yep, yep. And John Milbank on, on you know, on one side, on the sort of extreme Lubacian side. So if you have de Lubac and you are being formed in early 20th century Catholicism as he was, which seemed to have a, I mean, it had a tremendous Latin mass, high ritual, a kind of severe French asceticism, that it seemed to have all of the wonderful promise of transcendence, but at, at the end of the day, kind of disconnected from reality. And so his book, uh, The Supernatural, which argued for the legitimacy of this natural desire for God, is uh, that it has within it a desire for the supernatural and not just, you know, a, a natural knowledge of God. It was an attempt to restore the, to restore the promise of the gospel, which is that, is that we are resurrected in our bodies, that this life, the warp and woof of the created order, is, it has a role in, in, final, in God's final end. Okay, so, all right, good, right? Probably needed at the time. Now let's fast forward, Second Vatican Council, strong emphasis on uh, the imminent, strong emphasis on the horizontal, the communal, the social, strong affirmations in Gaudium et Spes on the shared human quest for God, bleaching out the distinctive, potentially bleaching out the distinctive claims of Christianity, a liturgy that's, that, that tends to be very flat and demotic, and lacks that transcendent push. And so you get people re-engaging the question of nature and grace and moving in exactly the opposite direction that the Lulubach said in order to try to recover the, the uh, strong transcendent thrust of, of Christianity, as well as the, the indispensable particularity of Christ as the Redeemer. So Dominus Jesus, the 
Vatican doc document pushing back against an uh, interreligious approach that will tend towards the one God, many paths approach corresponds with this theological, much, you know, much more um, technical debate about the natural desire for God and the nature of grace question. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right. Uh, let's transition to rock climbing. I think, rock climbing. Uh, it's not... Speaking of an upward thrust. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not as well known that, that you are a very accomplished rock climber. And in the mid-80s, you were, you were one of the, the people putting up new roots in Yosemite. You were a bum for a while. Like, how do you get from the days of... Well, actually, let me, let me do that one at the end. Let me start with this. You took a fairly legendary fall. Uh, <laughs> it's like I've come across this multiple times on internet forums uh, where you know, someone will, people will just be talking about falls and someone will say, well, Rusty Reno fell 200 feet in 1986 or whatever it was. And so how far did you actually fall? I was, let's see, what year was that? That was to do a second ascent of the Jolly Roger, which is a route on El Capitan that the year before had been put up by Charles Cole and Steve Grossman, two friends of mine. Uh, and, and they were very proud of this route. And they thought it was very demanding. You know, A5, copper heading for a couple, the, the, the two key pitches in the middle were pretty hairball, A5, copper heading in a seam. And I was a very accomplished aid climber at that point. And so I teamed up with Alex Lowe to do uh, the Jolly Roger, second son of Jolly Roger. And I was very nervous. You know, was, was I in grad school? No, I think this was the year before I went to grad school. So it must've been summer by June of 1984. And I, uh, I was uh, very anxious about this 5.11 off-whip pitch that was about five or six pitches up. So I arranged with Alex that he would lead the off-whip pitch and we'd swing leads. And I, I made it so that, and, and, and because he led the off-whip pitch, which turned out to be easier than 5.11, by the way, it was you know, vastly overrated. So then I would lead the next pitch, which is probably about 1,000 feet up at this point, or maybe, yeah, about 1,000 feet up, or 750 feet off the ground. I would lead the next pitch, which was Steve Grossman had led, which had a 100-foot um, run out that culminated in a 5.8 mantle, after which you would clip the first bolt and then move to a booking, which then would ultimately get you to some hairball copperheading scene. <laughs> and, and I, it was a big chicken head wall so it was very steep but very easy but the chicken heads ran out and that's when you had to do the mantle and here i am 100 feet above the belay being belayed by one of the best free climbers in the united states at that point who should have been in the lead because i was coming i hadn't done a lot of climbing and so i was not in my best form and anyway i i uh you know i, I tried to press out the mantle a couple of times and backed off and pressed out and backed off and I just said, oh, come on, it's only 5'8". Well, subsequently, evidently, well, Steve Grossman was a notorious sandbagger. And, um, uh, and also a person with, uh, yes, iron testicles. Uh, and uh, so I, I, I committed to the mantle and I popped off. And then, you know, pop, 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 so I fell 200 feet. 
200 feet. Wow. Was there was there a swing involved? Yeah, just swing at the bottom. I was pretty beat up when it was all said and done. I was kind of back up to the belay. I mean, after I, I mean, it knocked the wind out of me, and I, it, it turned out that I broke my tailbone uh, when I was hitting things as I was swinging. But I was able, you know, I jumared up to the after I caught my breath, got my breath back. I jumared back up to the ledge where Alex was, and um, and I said, "Oh man, you're gonna have to lead this one." Uh, and, but I think I'm going to be okay. He looked at me and said, because that summer before he'd been in Alaska and taken a huge fall and uh, comparable in, less, in distance. And uh, he said, you're not going to be able to walk in 30 minutes. We got, we got to go down right now. And he was at, I barely got to the base repelling. And it took me like 45 minutes to walk or an hour to walk back to the car. I was just, because your body's just saturated with, uh, um, you know, the uh, adrenaline, and, and, you, and you are beat up from hitting all these things on the way down. And what kind of harness were you wearing? But, uh, you know, whatever, some regular harness. That wasn't a factor. And did you fall directly onto Alex's belay? Yes. yes. So he, he, he caught you directly without any intervening protection? Well, there you, it was a pendulum from the belay over to the chicken heads. So there's a bolt just off the, off the ledge, clip from the ledge. And, you know, of course, he got dragged across the ledge, and he was himself kind of cut up uh, because, you know, who's going to fall 200 feet so you don't actually prepare for it as a belayer? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think, I mean, uh, a lot of people think that that might be the, the longest fall. Oh, I don't know. Jim Bridwell told me that when he was doing the Siratore, well, he was tied in. He didn't realize he wasn't clipped to the belay, and he went on falling the whole length of the rope. So, okay, 150 feet or 165 feet. I mean, at some point, it, it, I mean, you reach terminal velocity really basically after the first 30 feet. So whether you fall 30 feet or 200 feet, you're, the impact is pretty much the same. It's, you know, there are things you hit on the way that you need to worry about. But, but I've taken long falls, not 200 feet, but I've certainly fallen 80, 100 feet. So climbing has changed, uh, climbing has changed a lot since then. Uh... Some climbers lament the transformation of the American Alpine Club from an elite association of heroic explorers into just another access fund for the support of sport climbing and the diminution of goals and scope from the big walls of Yosemite or the Himalayas down to single pitch routes to bouldering to indoor climbing gyms and finally to the moon board, which reduces global endeavor to a set of about 100 holds reproduced identically in an app on tens of thousands of phones around the world. But it would seem that local chapters of the Access Fund, with their or, or even climbing gyms, with their concern for local places, local communities, strong land use borders, it would seem that they're prime examples of solidarity and active vigilance, while alpinism, especially in the fast and light style, valorizes the breaking down of boundaries and limits by the solo individual. These are both each is an impetus that you seem to value, the the former in in you know the political sphere and the latter within climbing itself. Which which do you find yourself gravitating towards or how does that tension 
uh, sit. Yeah, through. I mean, the Alpine Club, I mean, it, it evolved out of necessity. Uh, when it moved to Golden, that was a key, key move away from a sort of WASP, you know, Canadian Rockies, Swiss Alps, sponsor expeditions organization into a organization that would serve the wider climate community. And I think it's been successful in that regard. And so it's not, it's not the place. I mean, it wasn't a, I mean, Jim McCarthy was probably the last cutting edge climber to be a player in the Alpine club. He was one of the great gunks climbers in the sixties and he was a wall street guy and, and so on. And, you know, the climbing changed in the 60s, you know, Yosemite uh, in the 70s with uh, with the um, the, the, the uh, young bucks, young kids who actually were one was a bomb. And, and it became a sort of free spirit activity rather than a clubby activity. And then the role of the club became to really provide the infrastructure of support so that people can engage in, in this sport at, at all these different levels. And I think the access fund has been hugely important actually in the last 30 years for both preserving areas of accessibility as well as opening new areas up. And yeah, the idea that, you know, the sport has just been reduced to climbing gyms is absurd. There are, there are guys doing really extraordinary things all over the world at, 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 in the most extreme circumstances, taking you know, really embarking on incredible adventures. I, I really admire them. You know, I, it's beyond my imagination the uh, the sort of things they're doing, and it's part of it's part of the nature of the sport. I was doing things in the late late nineteen. I don't think that you know Leighton Core, who I climbed with actually at one point, he copperheading. You know, 85 copperheading was just beyond his imagination. So I was doing things in the late 70s that he would have gone, wow, that's so cool, but I just can't imagine it. And now at age 60, I meet young kids that are, you know, doing, you know, freeing roots on El Capitan and things like that, that I just have to shake my head and think, wow. I, I did the Dawn Wall in 1980 two or three or one, I can't remember when, with my friend Charles Cole. And and I have not watched a movie where Tommy Caldwell does the first free ascent. But, I mean, I've been there, so I don't need to watch the movie. Uh, <laughs> so, but look, I don't even have to see the movie to be able to just to shake my head and go, wow. I mean, I, I clipped the rivet ladders. I climbed the rivet ladders that go across this huge blank part of the wall. And it's just beyond my imagination to think that you could free climb anywhere on that, on that more than vertical blank face. So I'm in awe of these guys, I think. And the notion that the sport has become domesticated is absurd. So I, I, do you also admire the climbing gym communities as fraternal organizations? Uh, I mean, this is this is you know in your in your more political work, you lament the loss of of uh, fraternal organizations, clubs, and now it seems like climbing gyms and various other kinds of gyms, yoga studios are generating the kind of community uh, that, that kind of social glue that you know the Elks Club, for example, used to used to produce. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, uh, communities are, I mean, if 
if if people are going to you know work out on elliptical machines, I don't see any community there. I mean, something a sort of good, warm fellow feeling can develop. I mean, a community develops when you're united in a shared love, and so there are goal these goal oriented activities these that have traditions that have shared objectives, shared standards of evaluating people's, they have hierarchies within them. These are genuine communities, and the climbing community is appropriately described as a community in a way that I would say that, I don't know, the, you know, the drug sales rep community is a, it's a kind of ersatz community. I mean, I, I should admit, my impression would be. And so uh, I think the climbing gyms obviously now function as, a, or as nodes within that community where people meet, find people of comparable level of ability and ambition, and then get inspiration and encouragement, uh, role models, teachers, and it perpetuates the community. Then it's a key node in the community's self-perpetuation. Um, so I, I think they're good. You know, I find them dreadfully boring. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm scheduled to go to mine reopened a couple of days ago. I'm scheduled. I have to schedule now. So I scheduled to go tomorrow morning and I will put my two hours in because if I go to the climbing gym, then I was just out in Washington doing a climb at index town wall with a friend of mine. And my, you know, I was like, I was just barely getting from hold to hold because my fingers are so weak that I, I don't have any juju in the fig, in the fingers to do the hard roots. And so you got to go to the gym to just work on your, your basic finger strength. And, and then it makes the outdoor climbing more enjoyable and more, you have more range as an outdoor climber. Other people though, that I climb with the gym, it's really what they do. I mean, it's their soul arena and they, for them, it's a kind of, it's a kind of gymnastic. They lead in the gym. I never quite understood that. I mean, some friends want me to go, let's do some lead climbing day. It's like, whatever, I'll do whatever you want. Uh, don't you want to work on your lead climbing? And I say, look, it's not something I need to work on. You know, I've done that enough. I don't need to practice lead climbing. So, because I, it's the, it's the, um, you know, you do your, your, you do enough of it. And uh, I mean, if my, if I'm feeling strong, I can do crux moves 20 feet out from the gear. Uh, and I, I, starting when I was 25 years old, I, you know, I did a lot of free soloing to train myself to be able to stay cool under stress. You know, in other words, to, just to maintain your cool and to be able to move deliberately. And so it was probably when I was in 25, 26 in grad school that I kind of made that, I, I trained myself in that way. And then I became very confident leading, you know, well above my gear. That doesn't go away over time. So I was always the guy that my friends I would visit and they would save up the roots that had the 80-foot run out to the first pole. <laughs> so lots of people call me with 5'9 that are 150 feet long with one bolt in the middle. And so I was, it was okay, Rusty's in town. We can go do those roots. After that point, I could climb confidently you know, well above my gear. So uh, in, in Free Solo, the movie uh, that documents Alex Hunter. I've seen that one. You have seen that one. Okay. So he is more freaked out by the free blast, those those lower 511 slab pitches, than he is seemingly by the, you know, the boulder problem up above. Should he have been? Is this a generational thing? I mean, you, you're a you're a slab master. I've done the free blast a couple of times. I mean, I did the Salafay wall as a ape climb in 1978. 
to show you how old I am. And, uh, and then in the 80s, and I think I did it once in the 90s as well, I did the free blast. And those are hard moves. I mean, they are, they're negligible. I mean, there's nothing, it's, it's a, it's, you're not, there's nothing to hold on to. You're, you're doing a kind of classic slab climbing move, and 5.11 slab is um, tenuous. It's the nature of the beast. And I would regard, whereas guys like Honold, who are, if, when I would do, in my prime, when I would do climbs with my friend Charles, we would only take one large cam for multi-pitch routes on the theory that if we could get our hand into the crack, we didn't need protection. So you'd have you know, one fist size or hand size cam. So when I did Astro Man, we took one cam that was hand size. And, and it's got a 300-foot section of hand, hand crack at the top. And Charles you know, walked it up for 150 feet, left it, and then did the, the final 150 feet. And the theory is, is if you can get your hand, if you're, that, if you're as strong as Alex Honnold, but if he can get his hands in the crack, he ain't falling. And if he can get his fingers on a hole, he's not falling. Slab climbing, ooh. And he did it at night. And that when he backed off and he grabbed the bolt, at night, I'm thinking, ah. So that's my point about how the notion that climbing has been domesticated and the adventure's been drive, driven out of it by gyms, that is ridiculous. I mean, what an accomplishment that was that was documented in that film. I mean, I, I, I'm just in awe. And he was a total gym rat. You know, that's how he got there originally. Okay, so, well, let's see. In the interest of time, I'm going to skip a couple things. Well, so maybe to then back out of this climbing section, how, how did you go from being a Yosemite climbing bum to PhD student at Yale? What was the transition? I was, uh, it's funny, you know, Providence puts the strangest books in her hands at the right moments, you know. And when I would, went to Yosemite recently for an indefinite stay at age 18, I had in my backpack a copy of Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain. And in that novel, Hans Kostrup, the main character, is, he goes for a visit and, you know, kind of like gets sucked into this world away from the world, uh, a kind of vacation from life, really. And, you know, after a couple of months, I realized Rusty, I mean, I kept, I mean, I spent the better part of a year there, but I, I was aware that, you know, you have to actually, you can't be on vacation all your life. <laughs> and that climbing was a fantastic recreation, but it's not a vocation. At least it wasn't for me. And so I went back to college and I, fell in love with theology, and then off I went to grad school. I mean, it was a little more rocky road than that, but you know what I mean. Uh, once I got moving intellectually, that became what I really cared about. So for me, uh, climbing, it was true in grad school. Climbing, although that was independent, I would say once I started as a professor, rock climbing is wonderful because you can't think about work. I mean, because it, you know, the element of danger associated with rock climbing it engages your entire cognitive function. And so you are, you're not distracted because it, you're engaged in an activity that you enjoy, but there's this, this very uh, thick and impermeable wall around you. And all of the thoughts about the emails you haven't answered, the phone calls you need to make, or the article that you need to write, cannot get inside the, through those impermeable walls. So it's a wonderful opportunity to... Uh, 
to, to relax. So it's paradoxical. I, I do most of the leading when I climb, and I tell my, my partners it's because when I'm in the lead, I'm, in the mo- I'm at my most relaxed. So in a way, it seems you've come full circle or completed a, maybe a revolution of a spiral between your dissertation and your most recent book, uh, Return of the Strong Gods, Nationalism, Populism, and the Future of the West. Except in Return of the Strong Gods, the emphasis is on the community challenging the individual rather than vice versa. So how would you, I mean, you already said that you, you saw that original dissertation as a kind of failed project, but like, how do you get from point A to point B? The dissertation, like I said, it was very, it was, it was overly overdetermined by this modern problem of heteronomy. And, but I've come back to that problem. And, and what I've, what I've come to see is that, is that the, um, the danger of heteronomy or the danger that we become slaves to slaves to, you know, uh, the worldly idols. I, I give the hearth gods in the book I wrote on the resurrection of the idea of a Christian society of health, wealth, and pleasure is that we become enslaved when we don't have a firm place to stand. And so it's vulnerability, not heteronomy, that's the greatest threat to freedom. And so how do we, and in the Strong God's book, it's really the intensity of our loves and the depths of our loyalties that give us, that stiffen our spine and allow us to say no to the worldly powers that want to put us under their under their heel, want to put their boots on our neck. And so the typical approach for a young person going to college, even to this very day, but certainly when I was a young student, was you, those worldly powers will put their boot on your neck and you free yourself by critiquing them. And I have come to see that, that, as, that paradoxically, as the critical thinking or critical discourse has become more widespread and more powerful and in some respects even more insightful, people are more not less beholden to, you know, the, you know, the, 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 what I call the sort of captivity to the resume or captivity to this carefully scripted step from high school to college to internship to job and this anxiety. If you ever go off script, you're never going to be able to recover. And that kind of limitation on freedom is not because of a failure to critique worldly powers. It's because people have less and less of a firm place to stand in the world. And, uh, and also, I, part of it was teaching over the years, teaching St. Augustine's City of God, over, I mean, uh, confessions over and over and over again. I probably taught that 15 or 20 times as, an, as a professor. And I learned from St. Augustine that uh, false loves can only be cured by true loves stronger loves. And because, you know, in this confessions, he recognizes that he becomes the monotheist. He, he wants to become a Christian. There's that great passage where he passes the drunk in the streets and he's more free than I am because I'm enslaved to, uh, to, to my career, in effect, as a rhetorician and my status and my place in the world, where at least this person is free to, be, to follow this self-destructive hedonic desire. <laughs> and why can't he move? And he's got all these images. He's in chains and he's rolling. He's twisting and turning, going around and around and around. 
And it's really only in the garden when he's smitten by greater love that he's able to actually break the chains that hold him in bondage. And so you can, you can critique and critique and critique and critique, but you're still going to be in bondage unless you have a, a more powerful animating love. And the part of the book is to say that those loves have a civic, cultural dimension and not just a religious, spiritual dimension. And that our, there's an order to our loves. And, that, uh, and the, our highest love ought to be God, but there, we, get, we get tutored in this love and we are provided a kind of thick sense of who we really are um, over and against a world that's often hostile and does want to put us under its dominion, that we receive that from multiple sources. And they've all been weakened in the 20th century. And that, that my interpretation of our distempers, political distempers of 2020, which are, as we know, uh, those distempers are very much on view in the streets of many cities, stems from uh, a rebellion against this infinitely liquid world without strong loves. Liberal economists such as Tyler Cowen are interpreting the COVID-19 pandemic as a major reversal for the open society. The EU has been startled awake from a dream of a borderless union to the reality of borders that are too weak to contain the pandemic. Trump's January 31st travel ban on China was at first decried as xenophobic by the same critics who now say he did too little too late. If we're witnessing a durable turn away from open society globalization, COVID-19 would seem to vindicate defenders of borders and national interests. So why isn't this a victory for the discontents of the open society? It could precipitate rethinking, but in itself, uh, the pandemic has, has brought it into focus. It's driven by fear, not love. So we, we fear dying, and, uh, and rightfully so. I mean, it's not an irrational fear. Uh, so we fear sickness and death, and so we mobilize our societies to fend off this threat. That's very different. And from consolidation ordered around shared loves and affirmations. And I think fear can be very dangerous because it, it really will, at some point, you know, we, we talk about defeating the virus. I, I don't like that language with respect to nature, although it's understandable. But fear, fear can lead to aggression, whereas I think love, uh, a kind of anti-globalization based on on love of one's homeland, love of one's culture and civilization is, is potentially much more, is much more open in the, in, the, in the good sense than one based on fear. Isn't Asclepius, the god of public health, a strong god? I mean, it seems surely he is if he can bring the world economy to a standstill. And while this strong god inspires fear, he also inspires solidarity. Um, in fact, fear can be one of the great enabling passions of solidarity. So how do you distinguish Asclepius from the strong gods of, say, truth and nation that take a prominent place in your book? I don't think health is a strong god. I think it's, uh, it, it's, it's like, I mean, look, wealth is a strong god, too, at some level. I mean, they are, greed is a powerful, powerful emotion that can incite in people extraordinary sacrifices. And health is, uh, is equally strong in that regard. But I think it's a thin, it's thin, right? You know, what, what, uh, does it, what does it demand of our soul? 
you know, and once the, the danger passes, we go back to normal. So yes, it, it, it can evoke solidarity in, insofar as we are concerned for the safety of others, certainly. But it, it's double-edged, which is that in this pandemic, the other is a threat. The other is a, uh, an enemy. So it, was, it was very Hobbesian here in New York in April of this last spring as uh, when the virus was kind of at its hottest, so to speak. And people were very fearful. And so human encounters were fraught with threat of, of death and danger. And that, that's an enemy of solidarity. Um, even if you can make, just like greed is an enemy of solidarity. Look, you can have very strong partnerships in pursuit of profit, right? I mean, Aristotle recognizes that there are friendships of utility. And those are not false friendships, but they're, they, they're, very, easily, um, they're very easily broken when, when these interests of utility begin to diverge. And, and, and I think the same thing is true for the God of health, right? We're all in this together until a sick person actually comes into my home or, you know, uh, and I think, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, in, in contrast to truth, which is enhanced by being shared so that you know, there's no diminution. My wealth is diminished if I have to share it with others. My net worth is cut in half if I have to share it, say. But if I have to share with my students truth, that community is actually enhances my possession of truth, my joy in it, uh, my knowledge of it. I always found teaching was when I only, that's when I first really actually learned things. I learned things in grad school, but I didn't really know them until I had to teach. And so sharing the sharing of truth, beauty, um, goodness, these, the sharing of one's own national heritage sharing of your family, you share your family heritage with your children. Those are all, all of that. That's the kind of solidarity that's not one of utility, but rather of love. Here's a question from uh, a colleague who's a reader of yours. Why is a strong personalist, pluralist, democratic state not a possibility? This would be a state that prizes individual rights, but also thick institutional, communal, and societal connections? Why must we give into the false choice that the 20th century has given us between individualism and pure Trumpian populism? Yeah, I mean, let's just keep Trump out of it because that's, it seems to me that, I mean, of course, isn't that what we want? Isn't that what you want for your children? You want your children to flourish as individuals. And at the same time, you hope that they remain firmly part of a, an interval family. Uh, and we don't tend to see these at odds with each other. We tend to think that insofar as I provide my child with a warm and loving home, with clear, that has a kind of clear, we, we are who we are, that that will be the foundation on which they'll actually develop this kind of strength to be, pursue their muse, to follow their dreams. And so similarly, I think this, this is, I think, what, what we ought to be aiming at in a civic culture is that it goes back to what I said about freedom. My own views of freedom is that the greatest threat to freedom is fear, not, um, not uh, heteronomy. And that, you know, I'm always shocked by 
young people, talented young people that go to very prestigious universities that feel like they have so many choices. I mean, what are you talking about? I mean, all worlds at your fingertips. But they're fearful that they'll miss out on the internship. They're fearful that they somehow will be economically vulnerable. You know, they're, you know people don't get married. Why don't they like getting married? I mean, people say, so it's not quite the right time. It's not a good time to get married. My line is always, there's never a good time to get married. Uh, so you might as well get married now. Um, and plus, it's, it, there's no risk. I mean, there is a risk, but there is no risk somewhat. So uh, I think uh, it's a false dichotomy between liberalism as an ethos, a liberal society, the ethos of a liberal, of a liberal society, and the kind of thicker sense of communal identity that I think we all crave. The problem is a liberalism as a theory is, is wedded to this older modern notion that heteronomy is the greatest threat. And so it devotes a huge amount of its conceptual energy to, to uh, minimizing the authority of communal norms and empowering the individual. I think we live in a post-liquid, postmodern liquid age where the greatest threat to freedom is the, is the lack of any firm place to stand. And so reconsolidation would actually promote a culture of freedom. Like I what that has to do with Trump and populism? I mean, I think that uh, it's, it's important not to over-theorize domestic partisan politics. I think we should, we as intellectuals should think about these larger questions, and our domestic politics definitely fits into them, but they, they, are, they, they fit into these frameworks, but the framework, but the partisan politics itself is so messy, and it's so deeply characterized by the immediate exigencies of winning elections that, uh, that it, you know, it, I would say beware over-interpreting. Well, Rusty Reno, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at beatriceinstitute.org. That's beatriceinstitute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. Go with God.